I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Pleasure to be with you this morning. For those of you, for those of you who don't know, I'm Ivan Lambert. Uh, I once pastored the Covenant Presbyterian Church here in town, and uh, foreseeing what we thought was the best thing for the city, we gave this property over to a church plant meeting down at the high school, uh, Redeemer, 
and we've enjoyed being here ever since. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe anything at all? Often when you hear people today, they'll say things like, well, I have faith. Or maybe, just have faith. But is that really a virtue in itself? To just have faith? I mean, think about it. All of us believe something. And everyone in the world believes in something. So how is that a virtue to simply have a vague, ambiguous faith? You may have noticed today when David was leading us in the Apostles' Creed, he asked us to confess the faith. That is, the Christian faith. The faith handed down through the centuries of that which has been tested and proven true. And so... uh, To just say that we have faith is really something that sets us uh, not any differently, and it doesn't uh, put us in a different position, actually, than anyone else from any other world religion. The issue ultimately is, what are you believing on? What are you trusting on? What are you leaning on? What do you believe to be true? The content of our faith is what ultimately matters, and that is what Paul was addressing here in the passage that Susan read for us in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, uh, Paul went as far as to say, if this is not true, the joke's on us. Uh, We have been fooled. Regardless how sincere we've been and how much we say, I have faith, In fact, he went as far as to say, we are to be pitied. Many of you have no doubt watched, to some degree, uh, Wheel of Fortune or Jeopardy. We often have those on in our home in the evenings. And you'll notice something that occurs. Uh, Two of the contestants can do really well on, let's say, Wheel of Fortune and win lots of money. And uh, that one person, you know, it, it just... The wheel just didn't work for them. And they just did not land on good spots. They didn't have an opportunity to solve puzzles. But at the end of the show, you'll notice they they give them complimentary money, complimentary prizes. Thanks for coming by. Something to help you feel good and enjoy the experience. Whether you did well or not. But Paul doesn't say, you know, whether Jesus resurrected from the dead or not, uh, Well, I hope it makes you feel better. He says everything in the future rests on it. In other words, when you and I die, everyone likes to say, oh, so-and-so died and we know they're in heaven. No one will be resurrected to eternal life in heaven if Jesus did not first raise from the dead. And so everything rises and falls as far as we are concerned for our future hopes on the resurrection. And that's why Paul says, if it is not true, we are indeed to be pitied. Now, all religions have their claims. They have their religious claims. And we can say that certainly, logically speaking, uh, they could all be false. Everyone could logically be wrong. 
But we could not, logically speaking, say that all religious claims are true. And of course, that is because they are so widely contradictory. They have different claims. Somebody's right. Somebody's wrong. And so Paul says, uh, investigate this. Uh, in the beginning of the chapter, what Susan read, Paul said he was seen by some 500 people. And then he adds that little caveat. It's wonderful. Most of whom are still alive. In other words, I dare you, <laughs> those who don't believe, I dare you, ask them, challenge them. You see, the Apostles' Creed, one thing we noticed last week when Jonathan was preaching for us, and um, we noticed the phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, that's very intentional. The reason being, uh, like some world religions, it's not just some, some sort of vague, he died one day. But what, we're, what the Apostles' Creed is after to convey to Christians and to the world is that he suffered under a certain person at a certain time, which can be historically verified, historically confirmed. And we have this again today. We don't have some kind of vague, ambiguous Christian claim, uh, he resurrected from the dead. We don't have the religious claim like another religion, these tablets just fell out of the sky and appeared. And when asked to uh, support his claim, Joseph Smith uh, basically said, well, it was a secret knowledge that no one else knows. O only I was given the ability to interpret them. You know, nothing that can be confirmed historically. And it's sad that people follow these trails. But what we have in the Apostles' Creed is not that Jesus simply resurrected. We have the... Notice the historical specificity. On the third day. Now, folks, if we had ever gotten to the fourth day and the tomb was not empty and Jesus was not spotted by someone, it's over. Fake news. Right? Fake news. Now, in looking ahead to this, we even have records that the apostles have recorded for us in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is nearing the time of his crucifixion, and he tells, for the first time, he tells his followers, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day, raised. Can it get any more specific? If that wasn't enough, the following chapter, Matthew 17, when Jesus is transfigured there and giving a brief glimpse of the glory which he will return to, that, that glory from which he came and humbled himself and came to this earth. And after that transfiguration, it says, and as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. 
then in Matthew chapter 20, as they are entering the time of Jerusalem, as they're going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. We're almost there. We're almost to Jerusalem. And he took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised, everyone with me, on the third day. Well, indeed he was crucified mocked, spat upon. There was a kangaroo uh, court. It was a joke. False witnesses were brought in. He was condemned and crucified. But we read on the first day of the week, the tomb was found empty. Guards were scared and scattered. We read not only of some it is not, like I said earlier, a vague resurrection, but we read of 12 different verified appearances of Jesus over a 40-day period. Names are actually given during these 12 appearances of those who saw him. Mary Magdalene, Mary, Peter, John, 10 disciples, and then Thomas joins with them a week later, 11 disciples. James, Paul, 500 people. But of course, there are skeptics. There are those who refuse to believe. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, there are those who suppress the truth, trying to come up with some excuse why they don't believe, and yet Paul says they are without excuse. After all, how can you suppress what is not already present? How can you suppress evidence that is not already there? And so various theories are proposed to try to explain how this could have possibly happened because Jesus could not have certainly resurrected from the dead. One of those theories, we'll just go over a couple here. One of those is the hallucination theory. The idea being that the disciples were sincere men. They had been with Jesus for roughly three years. And having been with him for three years, they had been tremendously influenced by his teachings, his moral teachings. He was a good man. They saw him show compassion like no other. They heard his predictions that he would resurrect from the dead. And so, though, of course, resurrections don't occur, there has to be a logical explanation for it. They imagined, they hallucinated that they saw him. But what we have when we look at the 12 various appearances of Jesus in the gospel records are occurrences where people not only saw him, but they actually heard him. Some of those instances we actually read of people touching him, Thomas putting his hands in his side. We read of people eating with him. We read of him eating himself, them seeing the food disappear. These are historical confirmations. 
of a genuine bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. Now, Diana, I tell you, there have been times that, uh, you know, we're all wired a little differently, and she loves to tell me about her dreams. I had this dream, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And, of course, I'm sitting there, you know, because dreams just don't fascinate me, I guess. But are we to believe that when she finishes telling me about her dream, that I'm actually going to say, I had the exact same dream last night? Yeah, you even laugh at the thought. Now, multiply that by 11 and imagine that the 11 disciples had the same dream. Exactly. And the 500 people that saw him all hallucinated this as well. And at that point you go, okay, that, that's folly. That, uh, <laughs> that clearly cannot stand, that theory. And then there's also the swoon theory. That is that, well, yes, he was beaten, he was crucified, it was terrible. The Roman crucifixions are historically verified as just terrible beatings. Uh, but perhaps he was almost dead. I mean, perhaps it looked like he really was dead, but he was not quite dead. And therefore, when he left the tomb, it wasn't really a, a resurrection from death to life. It was just him leaving the tomb. Well, the scripture records for us that these Roman soldiers being trained, and history tells us that indeed they were trained in crucifixions, they knew what they were doing, that they pronounced him dead on the cross. You recall even the one incident where the spear is rammed up into Jesus' side and water and blood flows and the Roman soldier proclaims he's dead. And then, if that's not enough, there's the Roman centurion who was the ranked Roman official who was leading and presiding over the crucifixion and watching and making sure his soldiers under his rank accomplished that crucifixion. The centurion proclaimed him dead. Was he fooled too? And then there's Nicodemus and there's Joseph of Arimathea, members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. You didn't get to be a member of the city council unless you were a knowledgeable person. They took Jesus' body. They said he was dead. And they then did the work of embalming him they embalm a person that was still alive? And then from 6 o'clock Friday night through to Saturday morning and then all of Saturday, so you've got 6 hours Friday, you've got 24 hours Saturday, you've got another roughly 6 hours into dawn on Sunday morning. So basically 36 hours, you have someone who has been just mercilessly beaten and crucified by Roman soldiers without medical attention, embalmed with what they believe was basically about 75 pounds of wrappings, and he's going to unwrap himself. Then he's going to move the huge stone himself after being terribly beaten and losing all of that blood, nearly dead, according to the theory. Then he's going to fight off the Roman guards that were there watching over the tomb, stands so well. How about you? And then, of course, there's the one that you'll often see on when you're watching PBS or the History Channel. 
The disciples stole the body. The disciples stole the body. We were talking last night and remembering a time years ago when our boys were very small. And uh, our youngest, Mark, was born in 97. And this occurred when Mark was five. Maybe I'll give him six at the highest. He's just a little bitty guy. And I would read to them, usually, you know, just 10, 15 minutes a night, and then put them off to bed. And, you know, the, the thinking was uh, just drip by drip, just give them something uh, every day and, and, and pray to God that he will work through his word that you read to them and, and uh, that they will have faith on Jesus. So it was the night before Easter. And knowing that the next morning our church had a, uh, an early sunrise service, uh, we just simply, I just simply read the text. And I remember very well, because it's become something that I've told over the years, read in Matthew, and I read the account of how uh, Pilate was told by the Jewish authorities, you know, this guy, Jesus, says that he's going to resurrect on the third day. Uh, we better make sure you know, nothing happens here. And uh, so Pilate gives them the, uh, the opportunity. Uh, Roman guards are placed there. The Roman guards are placed there. And the Jewish uh, leaders come, and after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, the, the Jewish leaders say uh, to the soldiers, well, just tell people you fell asleep, and the disciples came and stole the body while you were asleep, and we'll take care of it with the uh, Roman governor, so you won't get in trouble. Finished reading the story, shut the um, Bible up, and sent the kids to bed, put them in bed. The next morning, Easter Sunday morning, we get up, we're walking to the uh, sunrise service there, the chairs are set up outside, and Mark was still little enough that, you know, little kids don't mind you still holding their hands. You're not being a mean, restrictive parent yet. And uh, so I'm helping Mark there, and we're walking up there, and all of a sudden I feel a tug on my hand, and Mark says, Dad, in that little high-pitched voice little kids have, Dad, if the Roman soldiers were really asleep, uh, how do they know it was Jesus' disciples who stole the body? True story. I had not explained it away. I had not tried to uh, explain to him that that was false. I just read the story, put him to bed on Saturday night. That little booger went to bed thinking about that. Got up that morning, he's still thinking about it. Little six-year-old figures out, wait a minute here. If the Roman soldiers were actually asleep, how did they know that it was the disciples who stole the body? We have historical verification. And Paul says, as Susan read, in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 saw him, and most of whom are still alive. This can be verified. Luke, as he begins his gospel, says he's writing eyewitness testimony, a faithful report. Check it out. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. But then we read, the creed says that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Could this possibly be true? In John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. He then, being honest man that he was, tells the crowd that he knows that many of them only want a miracle worker. They just want a, the, the meals. They just want something easy from him. And so he begins to give them some hard sayings. 
And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Oh, if you think this is hard to believe, you wait until you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. If you think this is something, feeding the 5,000. In Luke 22, during the terrible false trial, the terrible misjustice that is carried out on Jesus, the plot to kill him and the betrayal, Peter denying him, Jesus before the council. And what transpired was when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask of you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Woe. Not only has this man been saying that he's a prophet from God, not only is he the ultimate teacher, he's telling them, you don't believe who I am, but I'm telling you, when this is over, I'm not only going to be approved by God, I'm not only going to resurrect from the dead, I'm going to be at the Father's right hand. I will be accepted before the Father as having completed my mission. And I will be sitting in the place of all designated power. Delegated power will be given to me. Now what was their reaction to that? So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. In other words, he's mad. He's crazy. We've heard all we need to hear. But indeed, we read Luke's report in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus told them that they are, this is after the 40 days, after the 12 appearances that are recorded for us, and of course there are more appearances over the 40 days, but 12 are recorded for us. All history is selective, of course. Jesus says to the crowd that's there with him, you will, receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. The gospel going out into the world, ending up in the imperial city of the day, Rome. And while they were gazing, um, and, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, this Jesus who was raised on the third day, this Jesus who appeared time and time again over the 40-day period, this same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He ascended to the Father, 
and is at, sitting at the Father's right hand. Now notice scripture and the creed both give the image of him sitting at the Father's right hand. This is historically by the church called his session. He is sitting at the Father's right hand to show indeed that his work is accomplished. Remember on the cross he says, it is finished. The, the work of atoning for sins had been accomplished. And all that was left for him then was the, the resurrection and the appearances and the teaching over the 40 days, the things of the kingdom of God. And when that was finished, he is now seen sitting at the Father's right hand. Several times in the Old Testament, we have the use of God, or the description, if you will, of God's powerful right hand. One of those occasions is the famous Exodus, the Israelites in oppression from the oppressive um, Egyptians. And they're in slavery, and God uses Moses and his signs, God's signs, to deliver uh, the Israelites. And it says in Exodus that God delivered the Israelites from Egypt by his right hand. A way of saying he was all-powerful. And we have confessed that we believe in the Father Almighty. That his plans cannot be thwarted. His plans cannot be stopped. Uh, Dan Patrick, for years on SportsCenter, used to have fun, in particular, giving the, commenting on the highlights of Michael Jordan's games. And he would say this phrase, and it became famous over the years. He would say, you can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. Well, I got news for you. Jesus, you, you can't stop him, but you can't even contain him. He's at the Father's right hand. All power has been given to him. And in one of those 12 appearances that are recorded for us, it is uh, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 28. He's with his disciples, and he tells them to go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And his promise is to be with them until the end of the age. And we often quote this. And the vast number of, of Protestant churches quote this throughout this country and around the globe. But what is often missed, I know by myself and often in presentations I've heard it missed, is the very preceding verse. In the very preceding verse there in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus makes this claim. And he declares... All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That is to say, go in my power. Therefore, go because I have conquered death. Go because I have accomplished the mission. Go because I have all power at my disposal. And you will go in my power. And the declaration... The teaching in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit will be accompanied by my resurrection power. He's sitting at the Father's right hand in power. 
He is ruling his church today. And though it looks like to us as all hell breaks loose at times and there's chaos, we are called to trust in the one who said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This, this declaration of all power in heaven and earth has been given to me is a promise to the church. It is a promise that he is at the Father's right hand in all power, the Father's power. In John chapter 5, the promise that Jesus will return. Jesus says, in response to the opposition uh, that he has been given, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. In his power, reigning at the Father's right hand, there is coming a day when he will exercise more of that power than he even is now, and he is going to speak the word. And all those who are dead in Christ, nothing will stop them. They will be resurrected to eternal life. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have that life in himself. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He will return. He's Savior now. He will return as Savior for some and as judge for others. Now you and I have the promise today in Romans chapter 8 that all those he foreknew he predestined and those he predestined he called. He sent the Holy Spirit to us in his perfect timing and effectively called us to himself. And all those that he called he justified. He declared us righteous. He declared us saints, though we're still sinners. Declared us forgiven. And all those he justified, he glorified. Now notice, Paul concludes that verse by saying what is going to be done in the future, he, our, our being glorified, is stated as a past act. All those he justified, he glorified, past tense. You see, the reason we can trust in his promise that he is reigning from on high in power with promises like that is because it, it's been decreed. And he will act out what he has decreed. He will come through. He can take it to the bank. And just a few verses later, he says that he is at the right hand interceding for us. And so today, what does it mean for you that Jesus has resurrected and that he has ascended to heaven and is sitting at the Father's right hand? It is that he is in all power, but it is also that he is your advocate. He is your advocate. He is your defense attorney, if you will. And he makes a strong defense for you that no one, not your conscience, not your guilt, not Satan himself, 
No one can ever defeat that claim that we are his. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you indeed that you did resurrect from the dead. You conquered death. You promise to be with us in all of your power. You promise to be with the apostles through the end of their age, and you promise uh, to be with us in all of your power. We praise you, and we worship you. These things we pray in your name. Amen. And what an opportunity that will be to continue to worship his holy name. Receive these good words today, his promise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.